Listen, though, they were working with all these heavy metals, though. Like, I'm not unconvinced that they didn't also think they were talking to angels. And that may very well be the case, you know. <laughs> Uh, a, a lot, a lot of yeah. medieval alchemy was beer making, you know. So uh, you spend the day in the lab, and you're making a nice ten percent <laughs> IPA, and uh, the next thing you know, you're hearing voices. Yeah, <laughs> it could happen to you anyone. Don't even realize. <laughs> I'm Paige. and I'm Megan, and this is Spooky Science Sisters. Hello, you're listening to Spooky Science Sisters, a podcast where we present to you a science-based and probably very giggly discussion on all things strange and unusual. Our substitute sister for this episode is Dr. Brian Regal, a history professor at Keene University who has been a guest before to talk to us about the origins of cryptozoology and who joins me today to talk about the history of alchemy and its influences on modern science. So Brian, do you want to introduce yourself briefly again and let us know what your deal is and why you're interested in these types of topics? <laughs> okay, my name is uh, Brian Regal. I'm a professor of the History of Science, Technology, and Medicine at Kane University in New Jersey. And I write about strange stuff. I've written about monsters. I've written about uh, pseudoscience. Uh, I've written about alchemy. I've done tons of op-ed pieces on various controversial subjects, which of course means I get tons of hate mail. And yeah. <laughs> uh, my, my latest book is called The Battle Over America's Origin Story. And it's about the tradition of legends and myths about who really discovered America. Yeah, I think that was like on the verge of coming out or maybe was like right. in the editing yeah. stage when we talked to you last time. <laughs> yeah, it's actually out now. I think they've even put out a paperback edition, although they didn't tell me. <laughs> yeah, well, we will certainly link to all of that in show notes and everything so people can find you. And the other thing to note is that you also teach a class and are currently teaching a class on the history of alchemy. So how's that going this semester. <laughs> good, very good. It's a senior level course. And so half the students in the course are students who have taken my other classes before. So it's like old home week. Uh -huh. And uh, that makes for a very enjoyable uh, situation. Uh, the students are ready to speak and talk. And, you know, I tell yeah. really bad jokes. And <laughs> Good. <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, we will jump into alchemy right after we do something spooky. I will go first, so that way, if you need a chance to think of anything or remember how it works. And to be fair, I don't really have anything specifically spooky that has happened to me recently, but a couple things for listeners. First, I'm very excited that the uh, Netflix show, The Fall of the House of Usher, is coming out tomorrow. So there's a lot of hype about that. This week we get a Friday the 13th, which is always fun. So Brian, has anything spooky happened to you recently that is of note? Nothing Nothing ever spooky ever happens to me. That's, that's yeah. where I have a, a problem. Uh, on this thing that they had last week where, you know, everybody got this message on their phone Oh, yep. I've had all my COVID shots and I got the message on my phone <laughs> and I still haven't turned into a vampire. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, a little, I'm a little disappointed about that. I, that that might have been fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was either a vampire or like a zombie or something like that. I don't yeah, know. We're it's, all... a, it's one big tease. Yeah. <laughs> I know. And I like, I just got the very, you know, updated shot. So I was like, oh, I'm going to be like a super zombie. <laughs> By the end of the zombieing around all over the place. <laughs> no luck, though. <laughs> Maybe next time it'll be like the end of the world predictions. It'll just sort of like move to like, oh, well, the next shot will be enough for like the 5G to kick in or whatever happens. <laughs> well, I think like last month or the month before, the world was supposed to end. Yes. Yeah. That was a. It never a does. Good one. <laughs> that uh, we again, know of. <laughs> one, one great big tease 
They keep telling me the world's going to end, and I wake up, and we're all still here. <laughs> and the world, the world is still just horrible. Yeah. And uh, I, I got to live with it. Yeah. At this point, just just bring it on. Yeah. Just end it already. <laughs> Uh, I know I got really excited when like I don't know maybe it was it was within the last couple weeks month ago or whatever they were like oh there's this giant asteroid that like probably is gonna hit earth and then the date was like I don't know 300 years from now or something and I was like well that doesn't do me any good (laughs) okay so we can jump right into alchemy I I'm really excited about this. You had messaged me to ask if we had talked about it before, and it's sort of been one of those things that's been on my list for a while. And specifically, well, not, I guess, not specifically, broadly, because it feels like it's sort of the definition of spooky science. (laughs) Like it's science with some weirdness blended in like mysticism and religion and occult things going on. But I think even looking into this more, you know, I had some misunderstandings about what alchemy was and how important it it actually was to like modern science later on. So I think you could probably do this better than I could. But do you think that you could give us like a general definition of what is alchemy. Sure, I can do that. Alchemy is a complex philosophical idea that contains both practical science, particularly chemistry, and a more uh, religious, theological, mystical aspect. Mm -hmm. Uh, We used to up until about 30 years ago, uh, alchemy was viewed by the scholarly community as as this sort of strange thing that went on. And it was interesting in its way, but it really it was a, a pseudoscience. So we, we treat it as a pseudoscience. But starting about 30 years ago or so, historians of science began to realize that it's much more complicated than that. Uh, that alchemy is for the most part, not a pseudoscience or was not a pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in fact, we view it today as the origins of modern science, Mm -hmm. Uh, chemistry, physics, metallurgy, thermodynamics, even biological evolution can be traced back to these concepts because the whole underlying message of alchemy is change. How do you change one thing into another? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw it described frequently as sort of as a proto science. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a perfect uh, phrase to use. Yeah, yeah, and it's my understanding that it's centered around this idea of transformation. Uh, a lot of it focused on transformation of metals, but the idea here is that we're perfecting things. So. In a lot of Western alchemy, it was like so-called base metals, like lead could be transformed into gold, which was considered the perfect metal because it doesn't rust or tarnish, which like, fair point. And another of the the main goals here, we want to create the Philosopher's Stone, which I guess all the American Harry Potter fans would know as the Sorcerer's Stone. (laughs) And that promised immortality. It could also turn other base metals into gold. Uh, They wanted to create a panacea, which would be a universal medicine that could cure any disease. And I'm not sure if if this comes later. Uh, It seemed like maybe it did, but ultimately there was this idea, or maybe with some there was this idea that you could like transform and perfect like the human soul and body. Fair enough? Yeah, that's about about (laughs) right. Yeah. (laughs) Um, What's interesting about this is the way that the goals of alchemy change over time. Okay. Uh, we think that sort of the, the basic aspects of this comes out of India, China. There are some passages in the Hindu Vedas that lead some to think that they're talking about changing metals from one metal into another. The same sort of thing is in some very early uh Writings out of China talked about the relationship of gold and even extending life and medical cures. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I find really fascinating is that within Indian Hinduism, Buddhism, 
There are some references to transmutation of base metals into more valuable ones, but there isn't really, in these early stages, there really isn't that kind of mystical aspect. Okay. Uh, In part because in India, for example, they already believe in reincarnation. Yeah. So, So why bother to go through all this rigmarole (laughs) <laughs> to extend your life when you, we already have that covered. Yeah. Uh, and so that really becomes a thing when the Western Abrahamic religions start to get a hold of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's early on, this is all about practical work. Mm-hmm. Changing the color of metals, melting things into a liquid so you could then pour it into a mold and make something out of it. And so the early thinkers about this thing, which will eventually become alchemy it's all very practical Mm -hmm. actually there's very little mystical aspect uh at all yeah Uh, it's not really until oh say the the 13th 14th 15th centuries that all that sort of magic-y stuff comes along okay and that's when the the kind of parallel philosophy to alchemy which is hermeticism Okay. Uh, that's when these two things get intertwined. Okay, gotcha. And that's when the whole perfecting of the soul thing starts. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, that was sort of the impression that I got. Yeah, and 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 I'm sure we'll make this point several times over, but initially like where it starts and how it is for quite a long time before you get to this more mystical stuff is I mean they're just doing science. Like it's just early <laughs> Early chemistry and everything. It's metal. It's what we would today call metallurgy. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They find these rocks and stones in the ground, uh, and they realize mm-hmm. if you if you bash on them, or if you put them in a pot and heat them up and melt them, you can make stuff out of them. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I guess I would be. I got to stick this in at least somewhere because what in part gave me sort of a respect for alchemy and its role in history. And I think we actually talked about this before because you do like history of science and that's what the main character in these books does. But the discovery of witches books, it's like all about like she does like alchemical symbology and imagery and stuff. And so you get a lot of that in the book and yeah, all the, all the stuff with that. So I will never stop recommending that (laughs) book, especially when I get an episode about alchemy. Okay. So that's sort of what alchemy is. And you already alluded to this because you talked about India and China and where alchemy started. And that's sort of the point here is it sort of starts all over. And it's my understanding that the exact roots are difficult to trace for a couple of reasons, because a lot of alchemy was purposefully, at least later on, shrouded in sort of mystery and secrecy. And we'll talk more about some of that symbology in a little while that people use to like keep things very mysterious. Yeah, in the the early days of what we might refer to as the golden age of alchemy, Mm -hmm. there's all this very, you got to keep it quiet. It's a craft tradition, which means you learn as a student by working next to a master and nothing is written down. And that will change Mm -hmm. as time goes by and they Mm -hmm. start writing things down. And that's what will lead to this the thing that most people think of when they think of alchemy are these incredibly illustrated books, manuscripts, mm-hmm. these sort of crazy mm-hmm. pictures of lions biting the sun, you know, and and, <laughs> and talking skeletons. Uh, but that's going to come along a little bit later. Yes. And then, as you mentioned, the practice of alchemy, you know, develops across several cultures, and it seems like it's unclear how much they influenced one another, if at all, like if there was some trade route action happening or, you know, various cultures conquering others, like whether or not you get some of that exchange, but it might have just been that some of them developed these ideas separately. Yeah, well, like everything else in history, it's incredibly complicated. (laughs) Yeah. And what happens is the early centuries of the common era along the Silk Road, coming out Uh of China, coming out of Asia, 
you have all sorts of things, people, animals, ideas, physical objects. Uh, mm-hmm. And it starts to pass from Asia into the West, especially at first into the Middle East, where mm-hmm. uh, Muslim scholars see this and realize mm-hmm. there there may very well be something to it, uh, and they start working on it. Now, one of the questions that we discuss in my class is, you know, where does this word come from, alchemy? Where does the name come from? And Mm -hmm. there's a couple of different variations on this, but it's thought that the modern English word alchemy comes from Egypt uh, because Mm -hmm. Egypt, you know, three, four thousand BC uh, was known as the black land because you have all this water and silt coming from central Africa towards Mm -hmm. the Mediterranean and it gets dumped into uh, the plains of Egypt, which is why the Egyptian civilization grows because now you have this place where you can grow a lot of food. A lot of food means a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people means complex laws and governments and things. That's how they can manage to build pyramids because they have big population with plenty of food to feed mm-hmm. people. Uh, and so the right. word chemi is thought to mean the black earth, the black land or black dirt. Uh, and so mm-hmm. that may be part of where that name comes from. And then, it, it of course, that kind of collides with the Greek word keo, uh, which is sort of the general smelting study of the structure of metals. And so it's going to sort mm-hmm. of percolate through Hellenistic Greece and then into Islam, where they, of course, add the kind of definite article al, to the kamaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those in the audience who don't know this, in Arabic, al is the equivalent of the, or okay. l in Spanish, la in French. And so those two get put together, and alchemia, and then, of course, Europeans get a hold of it, and Europeans ruin everything they touch and, and, you know, and twist it out of shape. <laughs> so alchemia becomes alchemy and chemistry. Yep. <laughs> so it's like... Even, you know, the origin of the name is very diverse. It has this long travel yeah. from mm-hmm. China, India. I always tell my students, if somebody asks you, where was this invented or where did that come from? And if you don't know, just say India or China. <laughs> because, you, because you're gotcha. probably right. <laughs> so that was like, yeah. So I, I, I guess I sort of got a couple different narratives about that. So you're like team, they get it from India and China. Again, the people are thinking about smelting metal in mm-hmm. the Middle East, in, in Islam, even in, even in the Christian mm-hmm. world. Uh, certainly in the classical world, the Greeks and the Romans were smelting mm-hmm. metal. And so all that sort of gets you know, dumped in a great big fat stew uh, and out comes mm-hmm. alchemy. Yeah. I had also read that um, Alexander the Great was potentially also very important in the city of Alexandria, sort of prior to it becoming uh, more of an Islamic practice. The Greeks sort of get it from the Egyptians and Alexandria is very important. You lose some of those texts and knowledge when it's destroyed it becomes more of an Islamic practice, and then the Crusades happen, and then it gets very popular in the late medieval and Renaissance periods. Right. If you think of the world like a big wagon wheel, <laughs> you have these spokes coming towards the center, and the spokes are coming – one spoke is coming out of China, and one spoke is coming out of India, and one spoke is coming out of Africa. And the hub of that wheel is the Islamic world. So mm-hmm. – all this stuff passes through the Silk Road, kind of squeezes down at that point, and then becomes part of the old Roman highway system, which is already there. Mm-hmm. And so now you have this mm-hmm. basically a super highway uh, of information. And mm-hmm. Alexander, he invades India around about uh, the early 300s BC. And mm-hmm. That also probably contributed to bringing these ideas west. Yeah, right. <laughs> There's a huge impact of Greek mm-hmm. learning to call any kind of science, medicine, technology 
that comes out of the Greek world. We call it Aristotelian after Aristotle. Okay. Which is yeah. misleading because it makes it, it makes it appear as if Aristotle invents everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> Somehow he had the better PR guy. <laughs> and so he gets to take credit for everything. And so Aristotelian physics is the the Greeks want to understand the universe. And they get to a uh-huh. point where they say, okay, the universe is extremely complex. How can we understand it? We understand it by simplifying everything, break everything down to its simplest parts, and that way you can understand how the universe is put together. And they put together the four elements, uh, air, fire, earth, and water, along with the four humors, hot, dry, cold, and wet. And the the basic (laughs) idea there is that everything in the universe is made up of a combination of one or more of these elements. And so when Arab philosophers, Arab naturalists are also heavily influenced by Greek learning. And so what happens is as as alchemy is coming along, this is where the basic concept of the alchemy we would recognize as alchemy comes from this mm-hmm. basic understanding or this basic idea about the four elements. Because right. if you accept that everything is made up of basically a recipe of ingredients, these Mm -hmm. four ingredients, if you think that's correct, then logically you can change one thing into another by figuring out what the recipe is and then altering it. And so if lead, for example, you know, the classic alchemical idea, if lead has Mm -hmm. a recipe made up of a combination of air, fire, earth, and water, and gold is also made up of a combination of these things, if you can figure out exactly what the recipe is, you can change the one into the other. Right. Which, like, at the time, knowing what they knew and sure, it makes sense. <laughs> not what right. we know today, like, it's not that crazy. Of well, we, we know now that, that it, we still have this notion that everything's made up of basic elements. Today, we know there's a lot more right. of them than four. Right. Uh, they just didn't have all the details, but they had the basic idea. Yeah. It's like the beginning of like getting down to like the base of what are we made of? <laughs> How are things made? Which, you know, it's it's like, we'll make the point several times. Like, it's just science. It's just trying to understand the world around you. Okay. So a couple of things of note. So like once we get things going in um, sort of the medieval and, and renaissance in what we'd call, I guess, Western alchemy, I thought it was really interesting to find out that people like Isaac Newton and Robert Boyle, who's like one of the fathers of chemistry, um, were also were also either alchemists or like at least very interested in alchemy. We know now that both Newton and Boyle were alchemists. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I guess just because alchemy sort of had like a negative connotation for a while that was sort of a hidden thing so we're going to jump ahead a little bit and then we'll come back to like the symbology and sort of more modern science stuff but jumping ahead to like what you said it was sort of dismissed as as pseudoscience and we didn't take it seriously for a really long time up until like somewhat recently and so I want to touch briefly on like the downfall of alchemy so like we've developed alchemy we've got this early science happening people are trying to understand you know how to make different things how to transform different things it's in the late 17th and early 18th century though that chemistry starts to split from alchemy and become its own distinct thing. So it's abandoning the mystic and religious aspects for more scientific thinking and practices. And alchemy starts to be associated with fraud and I guess essentially becomes synonymous with only the gold making aspect of it. Um, It looks like it was also hurt by the fact that it was banned at one point because the King of England didn't want his wealth and power undermined by the idea that like his gold had come from the transformation of cheap metals. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, uh, everybody thinks that, oh, alchemy was banned because the church was afraid of witchcraft and demonology. That's the, yeah. While there were some clerics that said you shouldn't do this alchemy thing because, uh-huh. but mostly it was financial. 
You know, yeah. if you're a if you're a king or a prince or whatever, uh, you don't want somebody suddenly being able to create virtually limitless amounts of gold, which is then going to get dumped yeah. on the economy and wreck the economy. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you know, capitalism, I guess. <laughs> And, and there were plenty of fraudsters. Not every alchemist yes. was a fraudster, but there there were enough of them to get to give it a bad name. They they came up with a, a, a number of ingenious methods uh, by which mm-hmm. you could, in public with people watching, uh, you could seemingly change lead into gold. Mm-hmm. But it was you know it was basically just really good stage magic. You know, yeah, uh, pick a yeah. card and you know, is this your card? You know. And pull a yeah. coin out from behind your ear, that kind of thing. Yeah, and it sounded like there were sort of notable examples of, you know, people paying someone a lot of money who claimed like, oh, I know how to make the philosopher's stone, things right. like that. And then it's like, well, they you, can't. You could, <laughs> as a as a alchemist, you could make a living by sort of attaching yourself, leech-like, to some you know, mm-hmm. high-ranking noble who's got a lot of money, and you say, "Oh, if you if you give me the money to set up my lab, and you know, so I can, so I'll I'll make gold for you." And so they would uh-huh. do that uh, and string them along for a while, and just before it got a little too much, they would disappear. Yeah. The fraud aspect, the financial aspect, the breaking away of chemistry as sort of its its own distinct thing, despite, you know, very much sharing roots with alchemy, leads to its decline. And I mean, I think it takes a while to peter out, but, you know, I don't really think many people, if anyone, is practicing alchemy anymore. Actually, you'd so. be surprised. There's still people out there who claim that they're alchemists and they're, you know, doing uh-huh. this. Yeah. And as you said before, historians today see like 1700, uh, late 1600s, uh-huh. early 1700s as this moment that, like I said before, when all the stuff starts out, it's very practical. And then mm-hmm. as time goes by, it gets this kind of mystical hermeticism aspect attached mm-hmm. to it. But then around 1700, this sort of split takes place where the mm-hmm. the more practical aspects of what is being done splits off to become chemistry without the right. mystical stuff. And the mystical stuff right. never goes away. It just sort of goes off to the other side and becomes hermeticism uh, and deals mostly with the kind of metaphysical spiritual mystical aspect less on the practical uh and where the practical okay is less of the mystical becomes chemistry yeah so here's my question for you that i think you'll have better insight into than i would well as with all things in history like you say it's all very complicated but you mentioned that with the alchemy that that was happening in India and how it wasn't so focused on like achieving immortality because they already had this idea of reincarnation. So my question is like there seems to be a lot of this sort of like 14th to 16th or 16th to 18th century alchemy stuff that you know, has this mystical aspect, has these religious aspects, but like, couldn't you argue, like, it it seems like it doesn't jive, like it doesn't match well with like Christian ideals, despite being practiced in those fields. Because like, well, the whole idea is like, well, you're going to die, but like, you'll live an immortal life in heaven. So like, why would you want to have immortality on earth? (laughs) Do you you know what I'm asking? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I guess I'm I'm surprised that people weren't, like, you know, being like, oh, you're an alchemist, like, you're a witch, like, you shouldn't want to achieve immortality on Earth because you're going to get in, he- in heaven or whatever, you know? Right. Well, there, there was some of that. Okay. There were people who shunned alchemists because of this uh, sort of spiritual aspect. Because if if you believe that you can change lead into gold then mm-hmm. it makes sense if you're transforming lead into gold lead is the impure gold is the pure uh, now, we now know today that it's it's a little more complicated than that but that, 
But back then, <laughs> right. you know, lead represents the impure, gold is the pure. Mm-hmm. The human soul is lead. It's the impure. And so okay. what you're trying to do is to do all these machinations to turn the impure soul into the pure soul. And so ultimately what this is all about for some hermeticists, some uh, alchemists, is trying to get closer to God. You can't get close to God unless you purify yourself. Okay. Which in this case is like probably giving yourself severe heavy metal. Oh, yeah. I'm sure (laughs) they all had lead poisoning. They're all drinking silver and... You know, I know. probably the teeth are all <laughs> falling out and their hair's falling out. Uh, you know, I'm looking at all these recipes that include, like, I mean, I know, you know, it, we have a long history of giving people substances medicinally that we should not have, but like, so much of this is like in labs where they're working with without modern. PPE with, you know, lead and mercury and <laughs> sulfur. those drop and... down plastic shields in the, in the lab. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sad that, uh, that, uh, Paige isn't here for that reason. Cause I'm sure she'd have a lot of thoughts about lab safety <laughs> during this yeah, time. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the basic alchemist laboratory, along with all that great glassware, a lot of which is uh-huh. still used, uh, you have yeah. at least one furnace. And uh-huh. these weren't modern furnaces. These are, you know, basically made out of earthenware and stones and things. And they're uh-huh. open. And so, you know, they're, they're burning all the stuff. They're melting all this stuff. And so the fumes <laughs> are coming out, you know, and they're fainting all over the place. And, you know, drinking mm-hmm. iodine and gold. <laughs> all kinds of crap and mm-hmm. you know we're, we're poisoning themselves and, and yeah. they're probably drinking some of this stuff too one of the aspects of creating the philosopher's stone is the elixir of life uh the panacea mm-hmm. uh from the greek goddess so if you think you've created some sort of fluid some sort of cocktail that will oh cure your disease or extend your life what do you do <laughs> you drink it right <laughs> And of course, it has exactly the opposite effect. Yeah, I'm sure like so many people ended up just outright killing themselves drinking things they shouldn't have. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so one of the other things here that potentially contributes to the downfall of alchemy is the fact that alchemical symbology and and imagery and the writing that they did can seem like it's indecipherable. Right. (laughs) Um, And it's like a lot of it's really weird. And like, I think, I mean, I can see how you're like, oh, all these people were like drinking mercury and arsenic and then like leaving these insane notes behind. (laughs) Like, We're not going to take this seriously. Yeah. Yes. So that brings us sort of like this to alchemical symbology, which I wanted to at least spend a couple minutes on. And I'm sure you have thoughts on as well. But Again, there's this idea of like things have to be kept secret. Uh, much of the imagery and writing was allegorical, making it hard to decipher. Some examples that I came across, so like distillation could be represented by a dove or a swan flying upwards. Condensation, a dove or a swan, the so same bird flying downwards. Uh, nitric and hydrochloric acid, a green dragon devouring the sun. And I think the sun was a common symbol for right. gold. So that makes sense because nitric and hydrochloric acid together make aqua which can dissolve gold and other precious metals. <laughs> In the case of the Philosopher's Stone, there are steps 
to create it that could be re represented by animals or other imagery? I don't know. Do you have any particular examples you want to mention? Well, the, this whole thing about the imagery is uh, referred uh -huh. to as decnomen. And, and you're right. It's initially alchemy is this craft tradition. So nothing gets written down. You learn by watching the master. But then eventually they start mm -hmm. writing stuff down. But that immediately yeah. brings up this problem. You know, this is where sci modern scientific notebooks comes from. Uh, you you mm -hmm. record everything you're doing so you can repeat it. And if you write it in plain language, you don't want some mo coming in and, you know, snatching up your, your, your book and running off with it so uh -huh. they can take all your work and then make the philosopher's stone and you're left high and dry. And so it becomes a kind of standard thing that instead of... For example, if you're working on doing this and you decide the first step is to boil a gallon of water, if you write down in your book, boil a gallon of water, anybody can understand that. So what you might say mm -hmm. instead is, step one, the doves fly at midnight, <laughs> which to, you know, anybody who doesn't, is not an adept, that doesn't make any sense, but you know that- uh -huh. The doves fly at midnight means boil a gallon of water. Mm -hmm. And then they take it even further. And eventually what starts happening is they stop using text altogether. And they sh they use drawings. They use illustration. And so yeah. instead of writing the doves fly at midnight, you put a little drawing of a dove flying past the moon. And so again... If you don't, if you're not an insider, if you're not an adept, you don't know what this little picture means. Yeah. And so that's a way of keeping things safe. One of my favorite alchemists is uh, Abu Musa Jabir Ibn Hayyan, mm -hmm. early Islamic alchemist. He's not Arab. It's thought that he was Persian. And one of the issues we have that as a historian, and it's one of the things I teach my students, is that one of the issues we have with studying alchemy is so much is obscured. Yeah. Language doesn't mean what it means. Pictures don't mean what it means. And there are a number of famous alchemists like Jabir Ibn Hayyan. We're not even sure if they were real people. Yeah. Well, maybe, uh, but we don't know. And one of the great things about Jabir is he writes his alchemical textbooks in such obscure language. It took a long time mm -hmm. to decipher them. They've all been deciphered now, but initially it took you know, there were there were a lot of work to try to figure out what he's saying. And his obscure texts become so well known for their obscurity that to this day, uh -huh. when we find something which is hard to read or somebody's saying something that doesn't make sense, we call it gibberish mm -hmm. from Abu Musa Jabir Ibn Hayyan because he was renowned for these <laughs> very complex uh, ways he uh, uh, that he was explaining what he was doing. Yeah, and he's also the one who I think is the first to make or discover Akarija. He's also credited not enough, I think, with coming up with the basic scientific method way before Francis Bacon. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> he uses the word experiment. Uh, he says if you're not experimenting, you're not going to learn anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we talked about him when we did our like sort of general spooky chemistry <laughs> episode as being like one of those really early practitioners of chemistry, right. like not even in an alchemical sense. So yeah, he was a pretty cool dude. <laughs> if he existed, if he I existed, guess. Yeah, we're, we're not sure. <laughs> yeah. And there's like a dozen books, uh, you know, attributed to him. Mm -hmm. There's even books attributed to him that we think were written by somebody, not him, but masquerading as him. And again, we run into this all the time. Europeans mangle everyone's name. <laughs> and so instead of saying Abu Musa Jabir Ibn Hayyan correctly, it's really not that difficult. Mm -hmm. They yeah. start referring to him as Jeber. Oh. And when there's several texts out there that we think were written by someone impersonating Jabir. And so you okay. have... Text uh, ascribed to Abu Musa Jabir ibn Hayyan, and then you have this sort of fake guy, Jeber, mm -hmm. and then you have a uh -huh. fake of the fake, <laughs> uh, you know, which is pseudo Geber, 
And so, you know, you, you, as a historian, you have to kind of like wind your way through all these obscure texts and try to make sense out of things. And, you know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it, it, it's not always as easy as we would think, you know, oh, it's text. Mm-hmm. If you can read the language, you read the text. Now, you know what, what they're saying and not always. Right, right, right. <laughs> yes. And your um, example of, you know, the dev flies at midnight or what was it? Was it a dove? I already forgot. The doves fly at midnight. <laughs> the doves fly at midnight. No, it reminds me. I think I found just a list of allegorical stories. And one was like the allegory of John at the fountain or send a, <laughs> a Vagisius's enigma of the sages. <laughs> like what? The, and I, I read through some of them and it's like, I mean, you can, knowing that they are meant to like describe a process, a chemical process. It's like, okay, I can tell how like you would think you can see that these are instructions for something, for making something. But yeah, they're kind of wild <laughs> to, to read. There's a whole realm of practical history that's become more mm-hmm. and more popular recently uh, where you have mm-hmm. historians of science trying to figure out what these people are saying by by recreating yeah. the experiments. So if yes. you, if you can recreate this, we can see. Oh, okay. When they mixed this and that, they got this over here. So that's what the doves fly at midnight means. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. So you read my mind because yeah, I was going to point out that there is some really cool work that has been done or is being done by a chemist and science historian, um, named Lawrence. Is it Principe. just Principe or is it Prince? Friend Principe. of mine. Okay. Um. Oh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, by Lawrence Principe to go through and decipher these alchemical texts and try to reproduce their experiments. And one that I saw mentioned in several articles is that he created a philosopher's tree, uh, which is made by mixing specially prepared mercury and gold. I think the mercury has to be like distilled several times or something and heating them in a closed flask where they will crystallize into a golden branching structure that looks like a tree right and it looks like it grows yeah (laughs) yeah like you look like you're creating more gold than what you started with so yeah so it's a i'm sure it's very beautiful but again like no thank you to working with a lot of mercury (laughs) yeah you have you have to have good protective gear these days to to work on yeah (laughs) yeah i'm sure using like he's doing this under much safer lab conditions. <laughs> but yeah, right. My my whole job right now is like testing things for heavy metals. So I'm like reading all these things that they're working with and thinking like, what is happening to you people? <laughs> so that brings us to sort of my final topic that I wanted to cover. But just a little bit of an overview of how much of an influence it's had on modern science. And we've been talking about this the whole time. But Importantly, uh, many alchemists who were working were very skilled experimentalists, and we owe a lot in our modern life to their work. So I've got some examples. We've got uh, key contributions to the fields of metalworking, including the production of steel and other metal alloys, the extraction of metals from ore. Like we mentioned, alchemists were discovering chemical elements. They were working to organize and symbolize them in useful, if not also sometimes very mysterious ways. Arsenic, for example, was discovered at least as early as the 13th century. And I saw references to like the discovery of things like phosphorus and they're working with sulfur and mercury and, and you know, naming these things and, and treating them as individual substances. The Chinese alchemists, which that was interesting because it seemed like what they were doing was more medicinally related, but they invented gunpowder. So I don't know what how, how that was medicinal, but it happened. <laughs> and paper. 
And paper, yeah. <laughs> they discovered a lot of inorganic acids and bases like sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid. We mentioned aqua regia before, um, which again must have gotten them very excited because it can dissolve gold. So they probably thought like, man, we are really on to something here. <laughs> they brought the concept of distillation, at least to Western Europe. So I guess every time we have a a cocktail. We're going to thank an alchemist for that. And then just contributions to a whole slew of things from ceramics to inks to dyes to paints to cosmetics. Like the list goes on and on and on for like things that you can thank alchemy for. (laughs) And I did want to point out as we were talking about, you know, people sort of disguising their notes and not wanting others to read them. Like so much of this It's like, it's not gone from modern science. Like, people don't want to get scooped. People are very secretive sometimes with the lab work that they are doing. Um, I can tell you from, like, personal experience, like, we scientists can be, like, very, a very superstitious bunch. (laughs) Like, everybody, especially working in a lab environment, like, has little things that we do or like when we use a particular instrument that like make no rational sense, but they worked once and we got the results we wanted. So it's like, well, we're going to keep doing this forever. (laughs) And yeah, and I wanted to point out like, you know, there's all these things that we owe to alchemy and that alchemists may not have been aiming to like create some of these things or find some of these things. But like, that's the same with a lot of modern scientific discoveries. Like there are medicines that we have and use where it's like, we don't really understand the exact mechanism by which they work. We just know that they do and people take them. There have been modern scientific discoveries that have been accidents. Like for example, um, artificial sweeteners People were working on completely different things. They forgot to wash their hands, like went to have a a cigarette, went to eat their lunch and like accidentally put their hand in their mouth. And we're like, wow, this tastes really sweet. And now we have artificial sweeteners. Famously, um, penicillin discovered by accident. Yeah, just mold mold on bread. So I don't know if there was anything specific that you wanted to add. I guess the one thing is I was able to find the website for the class that you teach and look at a few of the resources that you had on there. One of the things that stuck out to me was that you noted that sort of understanding the history of alchemy helps us to distinguish things like fake news and like what drives people to fall for it, like sort of, you know, the art of the grift, all that. What makes you say that specifically? Yeah, well, that's that's one of these things that isn't often addressed that, you know, okay, yeah, it's interesting. It's fun. It's, you know, it's got it's got angels and gold and wizards and all that. <laughs> um, yeah. But what can what can the study of alchemy give us today? And it's mm-hmm. quite a bit outside even of the scientific, uh, because there's a whole category of alchemists who were con artists. They knew they mm-hmm. weren't actually doing this. They weren't trying to actually doing it. They were trying to trick people out of their money, trick people into believing these weird things, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not intentionally. Uh, you have John Dee, for example, famous British occultist working with this guy, Edward Kelly, who uh, – Kelly was was a real grifter. John Dee <laughs> usually gets let, let off the hook as simply naive and that it was Edward Kelly who was the, you know, the fake news guy. Uh, and they, okay. they believe they were talking to angels – uh, in fact, you can you can go into a bookstore today and buy paperback copies of you know the so-called conversations that they were having with angels, and people believe huh. they were really doing this. And so, if we look at that, we can see that this modern 21st century notion of fake news, grifting, lying, evil politicians, etc., uh, has been around for a while. And we can see the stuff yeah. going on today is the same sort of thing that went on in the past. Yeah. And so that's why it's useful for us 
to look at this topic. Yeah, right. Yeah, I understand how people were doing it before so you can better recognize it today. Listen, though, they were working with all these heavy metals, though. Like, I'm not unconvinced that they didn't also think they were talking to angels. And that may very well be the case, you know. (laughs) Uh, a, a lot, a lot of yeah. medieval alchemy was beer making, you know. So uh, you spend the day in the lab, and you're making a nice ten percent <laughs> IPA, and uh, the next thing you know, you're hearing voices. Yeah, <laughs> could happen to you don't anyone. Even realize. <laughs> okay, well, I think that we're sort of at our hour mark. That sort of covers everything that I had written down and wanted to chat about. Do you have any sort of closing thoughts on alchemy that you think the world should know? <laughs> um, well, I think we covered the the high points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you said, it's a very long history. There's a lot here. There's so much fascinating stuff about you know, particular alchemists who were working and the discoveries that they made and everything. So I definitely encourage people to look more into it. <laughs> and we didn't even really uh, start to talk about hermeticism. I mean, that's right. a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One topic at a time. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you joining me. Yeah, I guess if people want to find you, you're still on... Twitter X. Somebody hijacked my Twitter handle, whatever we call it. Yeah, I remember that happened yeah, a while so ago. I, so we'll I, have to update I had almost seven thousand the... followers, so that's all gone. Uh, so I re I reconstituted yeah. myself. Uh, I was yeah. originally Tarbosaurus. Now I'm at Romeo A two five, which which was gotcha. which was my call sign when I was in the service. My radio oh, call sign was nice. If you want, you can go to my university webpage. Just mm-hmm. Google my name uh, and you'll get my Kane University webpage. And you can see the classes I teach. You can see the the books I use for the classes. You can see the, the you can download the syllabus for my classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all my books are there. All tons of articles and op-ed pieces that you can download for free. Yeah. Yeah. And we will link to all of that in the show notes. If you want to contact me by email to yell at me for something, <laughs> I'm, I've probably said something to... to no, it was all uh, fine. <laughs> well, I mean other people. You know. Yeah. And you can just email me and I, I usually... As long as you don't curse at me, I'll usually answer any kind of email. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds good. And I always say, I want to say Keene University. I pronounce it's it wrong Kane, every time. Like it's Keene University. Yeah. Next time That's I'm going right. to remember. Every, everybody does that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate your time so much. This was great. That wraps up our episode on alchemy. Thank you again to Brian for joining us. Join us next time for episode 71 on the history of burial and funeral practices. If you liked this episode, hit subscribe and share with a friend. Check the show notes for links to all of our social media accounts, our Discord server, and Patreon. If you have any questions about previous topics or ideas for future episodes, email us at sisters at gmail.com. As always, thank you for listening and stay spooky. Spooky Science Sisters is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information or to check out other shows, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.